In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope the birds are singing. I hope the wind is at your back and the sun is shining. we got a great show for you today. The one and only Dr. Ben Malcolm, the spirit pharmacist. I'll give him a bit of an introduction, but I'll kick it to him because what he's doing is fascinating to me and I think to everyone in the listening audience. He's the uh, He's got his PharmD, MPH, founder of Spirit Pharmacist. He offers an incredible library of courses and webinars in psychedelic pharmacology as well as psychopharmacology consulting and education there's a lot more in there but let me just dish it off to you right there how would you dr ben malcolm how would you describe what you do yeah well i mean i come from a a, i mean psychopharmacology consulting and psychedelic education okay now that's the summary concise version of like what what do i actually do I come from a background as a clinical psychiatric pharmacist. So that's how I was trained in a traditional pharmacy setting, some postgraduate residencies in a hospital. I did a year just in psychiatric kinds of settings. I was in academia for almost five years, just kind of doing some literature synthesis and talking about psychedelics, giving continuing education talks and things like that. And eventually I just got to a place where I was kind of like, you know what? Academia is cool. I like teaching. I like mentoring students and things like that. But this passion project I've got, Spirit Pharmacist, just seems to be taking more and more of my time. And it's harder and harder to review the applications for new pharmacy school candidates and keep up with all the committee work and things like that. And so the pandemic happened, which Mm. I don't know, you might think of as you know, it was kind of a tragic time, to be honest. A lot of people like lost their lives. But I also like for me personally, it was almost like the great shakeup where it was just sort of like, okay, anything that you don't like in your life, it is officially time to drop it. Now you have a ticket to reinvent yourself to do anything that you want. The world is closed. And while the world's closed, you get to reinvent yourself and come out of it. When it opens, you can just open in a different way. And so that was essentially the transition year between academia and the 
psychopharmacology consulting and psychedelic education I do at Spirit Pharmacist now. Yeah. It's so well put. And I'm so glad that you see it that way because I, it's almost like a shift took place. And there's so many people that I have spoken with that found that time to reimagine who they are and what is possible. And it's, it's how did, so you've talked a little bit about how you move from the world of academia into the world of being your own person and, and founding this thing called the spirit pharmacist. And you've talked about, you know, you do some education, you do some consulting. Can you give me an example of like, let's say that I want to use you, the spirit pharmacist, like what would I come to you for? Yeah. So, so I think like the, the thing that makes me perhaps unique in the world of maybe psychiatry, as well as the mm -hmm. world of, of psychedelics is that I kind of come from both sides of things in that I was interested in psychedelics at the beginning of the day. I was reading about them. I was experientially curious young in my life, 18, 19 years old. I started reading about them a few years before that even. Right. So it's like I actually studied pharmacology and went to pharmacy school based upon an intellectual curiosity in psychoactive drugs or substances. So in some way, psychedelics inspired me to go on the educational path or direction that I did. Right. But at that time, I don't know. I didn't have much vision for my life when I was 19 years old. I was a, I was a competitive swimmer. I mean, the only thing you do is follow the black line 40 hours a week and take care of whatever else schoolwork you do on the side, but you're not necessarily thinking about what internship can I have and what do I want to, cause you're, I mean, swimming is your internship. <laughs> Lifting weights is your internship, yeah. right? There's, there's, I don't know, when you're a division one athlete, there's not that much space outside of it to do other stuff. So, you know, I never had the vision earlier in life that I was going to be a psychedelic pharmacist per se. But it inspired the educational path. And then as I went through the educational path, I really tried a lot of things. I really did a lot of things. I really wore a lot of hats. I tried to do a lot of leadership positions. I sort of felt like I'm going to drop a quarter million dollars on graduate school. I'm going to get my money's worth. Like mm -hmm. was sort of like my approach to it. It's like I'm going to make the most out of it. I'm not going in with any particular conception of what I'm going to do or be at the end of the day. I just know that this is the knowledge I want to soak up and create the most opportunity that I can while I'm there. So that's what I did in pharmacy school. And I'll say it was like the postgraduate residency training. This is around 2015, 2016 now, um, you know, in the hospital, kind of getting burnt out with hospital work, trying to think about like, where do I want to go in my career? And someone, a, a good friend, actually, uh, fortunately, just passed away, but she, but she mm -hmm. handed me a flyer for a, a PGY tour, a second year grad, graduate residency in psychiatric pharmacy. And like holding that flyer, like something like just click like, yeah, like this is the opportunity, like, like, this is what I should do next year. And then so when I had that, I was like, why are you doing a psychiatric pharmacy residency? <laughs> and then by then, you know, 2016. Hey, you know, Roland Griffiths published the paper mm. on psilocybin and the mystical experience around 2006, 2007. So now we've got several randomized trials, MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, psilocybin for depression, anxiety associated with life-threatening illness, psilocybin for depression had kind of started by then, ketamine's already a medically approved drug for the treatment of depression or, or, or suicidal behaviors associated with depression. So all of a sudden it was just kind of like, man, I got the education, I got the training, this has been my passion and interest from the beginning. And it all just kind of clicked as far as like, yeah, this is the direction I'm going. I'm picking academia. I like teaching. 
I like students. There's something about like the bright eyed, bushy tailed sort of like student that's just coming in like fresh and they're not jaded on the medical system and things like that yet. Uh, so they, they, they come in with just so much energy and enthusiasm and passion that it's just kind of contagious. And I don't know, I, I just like students, but I was also kind of like, well, academia, that's the kind of job where you have protected time for scholarship and you're required slash supposed to be doing scholarship, like writing academic articles, or publishing studies that you've done or giving continuing education talks and things like that. So I was like, well, and it's academia, you've got academic freedom. So for the first time in my life, right, instead of being a student or a resident where the academic projects are what your preceptor or kind of like superior sort of thinks would be a good idea or a good learning opportunity, it's kind of like, what questions do you want to answer? What do you want to write about? What do you want to speak about? And it was kind of like psychedelics, man. Like, <laughs> like, like I want to write about psychedelics. Yeah. I want to teach about psychedelics. And it's necessary. We have this thing called the psychedelic renaissance happening. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like, well, I'm, I'm an enthusiast. I'm stoked on the psychedelic renaissance. But honestly, it's a little cart ahead of the horse in that we've had 50 years of prohibition. We've had 50 years of stigma. We have 50 years of misinformation. You know, most healthcare providers have outdated and misinformed like attitudes about psychedelics. The public, well, maybe they're enthusiastic on benefits, but don't really know how to create like safe experiences for right. themselves. And then I think, you know, truly my niche or like what I do bridging the worlds is persons taking psychiatric medications now mm. that are approaching psychedelics for a mental health treatment or an intention for healing. And there's the potential for the kinds of clinically significant interactions that could either take the edge or diminish the effect of psychedelics. So their experiences lackluster and they're concluding it doesn't really work and things like that, perhaps falsely. Right. Or they stop their meds too fast. They taper off too fast. There's a level of desperation to get to these experiences as, and then they're kind of blown up in withdrawal coming right into a psychedelic experience. Um, so I'm sort of the person that knows both worlds, that knows the worlds of traditional psychiatric meds, knows the worlds of psychedelics. And basically, I'm just trying to take people from A to B, whatever point A and point B is, that's for them to decide, not for me, right? Like my consulting is not inherently about you come to me on antidepressant and I'm trying to convert you to a psychedelic, <laughs> right? It's like you're coming to me on an antidepressant and saying stuff like, I've taken this for a long time. I have some level of side effects or maybe it was efficacious for some period of time and now it's kind of worn off and it's been a while. And I'm really curious about who I kind of am underneath this antidepressant and if there could be some alternative management strategies or at least a way for me to have some kind of spiritual experience that allows me to feel more connected. And I think that that actually is kind of what's missing from my mental health regimen overall and things like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a psychiatric pharmacist that knows about traditional psychiatric meds and psychedelics. And yeah, that was a long winded version of psychopharmacology <laughs> consulting and psychedelic education. Yeah. It was really well done. I, I like the idea of being the bridge between this idea of psychiatric medication and psychedelic medication because it seems we're, we're there right now you know you had spoke about uh griffith's paper in 06 and up until that time it was almost taboo to go down the road of psychedelics and try to get a degree in there and you know you were looked at as some sort of woo woo witch doctor or something like that but right. we can see now that there's you, maybe you could add to your bio like pioneer in a way 
Like you are someone who understands like going forward, these interactions, you're one of the only people I've spoken to that is really trying to bridge that gap between psychiatric medicine and psychedelic, but how they interact together. What is it doing with this way? What's happening in the brain? And I guess that leads me to the question of, you know, we, it seems, and, and I'm a truck driver and podcaster. So this is, I'm just going to throw this out here and, and, and you tell yeah. me what you think in your opinion. It seems to me that for a long time, modern Western medicine adopted the approach of the coping strategy where, hey, we're going to give you these SSRIs and it may not solve the problem, but it's going to make you feel good enough to get up and handle your day. It's going to, you may not go and solve the issues, but you're going to be able to slap on the bandit and get through your day. And it seems like in some of these studies with PTSD, people are taking psilocybin or ketamine or some form of psychedelic and, and finding a way to face that which has been bothering them. So they're no longer using the coping strategy. They're more using the confronting strategy. Have you seen similar patterns between psychiatric medicine and psychedelic medicine? Yeah, I think so. Like there's definitely like a flavor of that going okay. on. I tend to not think of it so like black and white or okay. so like Good point. extreme. I think that there's a still like, you know, there are certain psychiatric medications I'm not a huge fan of and whatnot, but I acknowledge they have a role for some people. They are the right choices for some people, right. th things like that. Uh, so I feel like the sort of like, oh, you have depression, you're taking antidepressant. Oh, you're just slapping a Band-Aid on it. Don't you really want to deal with things, <laughs> right? That there's like yeah. this sort of like almost like condescending tone from mm. the psychedelic community that looks yeah. down on people that take psychedelic. Like, oh, you're the sheep that bought the big pharma pills. It's like, you got to rip those Band-Aids off if you really want. And, and it's just, a, there's like, there's just some sort of like sickness to it that is just not appropriate. Right. And it's sort of like anyone that's taking a psychiatric medication, well, not, maybe 99% of people that are taking a psychiatric medication are taking because they wanted to help themselves and they wanted to get yeah. better and they wanted to heal. It's not because they just wanted a Band-Aid to make things go on, right? So all that said, yeah, there's something to it. And it seems that the etiology for so much in the way of, I would say like mental health conditions, but it's also physical health conditions and substance use disorders traces mm -hmm. back to trauma or adverse childhood experience. There's something called an ACE score. It's literally the number of traumatic events you had between age zero and 18. And it strongly predicts your propensity to have mental illness, physical illness, or substance use disorders in your in your adult life, right? So trauma, that's a big one as far as like a root cause ideology, but I also think like chronic stress as an adult is like another one. So I think that these two sorts of like factors, like, like I have a daughter, right? Nah, she's beautiful. She's gonna be Congratulations. this weekend. Yeah. But, but, um, but she has like Play-Doh, right? Okay. And you take the Play-Doh and you put it through these different filters and some of it like it makes spaghetti and some of it makes <laughs> stars and this and this. So I'm sort of thinking like, well, these filters in the Play-Doh, it's like your genetic predisposition. Mm. And Play-Doh, that's the trauma, that's the chronic stress. And you push trauma or chronic stress through a genetic predisposition and it will express some kind of illness. But whether that illness is a spaghetti illness, a star illness, things like that, it's, you know, that depends upon some, some of the person's kind of, uh, makeup overall. 
So there's something about psychedelics that do give access to, I would say, like a deeper level of self, like a traumatic self, like the body keeps the score uh, is a very popular book that, that describes trauma theory around how traumatic events are stored in our subconscious or even unconscious, mm -hmm. kind of like our peripheral sort of, of nervous system. And there's a big sort of somatic component a lot mm, of the times yeah. to what I would say, like cathartic release that occurs at the peak of, of psychedelic experiences. So it may be fair to say that psychedelics have the ability to get closer to the etiologic root of illness and maybe mm. how they affect the etiologic root of illness, um, perhaps more so than traditional psychiatric medications. But, you know, on the flip side, there are people that take psychedelics and don't really confront and work through different kinds of stuff. And there's some, like, like look at ketamine. I mean, ketamine is approved as an antidepressant, but zero clinical studies that were done with ketamine were done as ketamine assisted therapy so far. So what you're looking at there is just a raw, naked neurochemical antidepressant benefit of ketamine. And it seems to, you know, on average, you give one infusion, it lasts three to seven days, right? So there are ways of essentially symptom managing using psychedelics, right? There's also the person that is really feeling down and really feeling bad and can't get out of bed and takes an antidepressant. And then they get out of bed and they go to the gym and they go to a nutrition mm, yeah. and they go to therapy and they heal because they're getting to the right. root of their things. They're changing their lifestyle so that that chronic stress is being toned down. It's being removed. Stop pushing the Play-Doh through the filter. You're going to get less symptoms and you're getting close to solving the etiology of your, of your illness. So, Yes. Right. Like, yes, there is something about psychedelics that, that I think does get closer to the heart. There's something about the mystical experience, the mm. experiences psychedelic gives that's highly personally significant and meaningful. Yeah. You know, there's data with MDMA showing that it sort of reopens what they call like neurocritical periods or periods younger in life where our brain was plastic and developing in a different way, which really does seem to give us the opportunity for unlearning and relearning, which is, you know, maybe the literacy of the 21st century yeah. in some ways, right? Um, so, so yes, psychedelics have that kind of flavor, but I'm a little bit reserved to just be like, ah, oh, psychiatric meds, those are band-aids, psychedelic drugs. Oh yeah, now we're getting to the root of illness and just, you know, plucking it like a weed from the garden and you're fixed, you know, cause that is, <laughs> right you know there's a flavor of truth in there but it's not all of it yeah yeah it's a great point i guess it kind of shines a light on on how how many moving parts there are and, and how narrow that point of view is you know even even like i've taken that view for a while but the more that i think about it like i don't know everybody that has psychiatric problems you know i can only compare things to my life or people that i know and even the people i know is probably not a fair accurate a judgment of what they're going through you brought up a, something that i'm fascinated by and it's the interactions between different drugs i was i saw recently that you did an article between ayahuasca and albuterol i'm a big fan of psilocybin and human growth hormone but i'm wondering like what are in your article that maybe you can talk a little bit about is if you if you would like to is the ayahuasca yeah. and albuterol you know you have like a steroid and then i was wondering if maybe you could kind of freestyle on the idea of psychedelics and human growth hormone 
<laughs> or is that is that not something we should do on on? Is, is that okay yeah. to do? On? Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if I have much like freestyle <laughs> input on human growth okay. hormone and and psychedelics, but yeah, the kind of. Uh, well, I don't know. What was the first part now? You shocked me so much with the human yeah. growth hormone question. That I forgot the first part. All, all I have on the human growth hormone. And oh, ayahuasca and albuterol. That was, that was the yes. first part. Yeah, there yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah so, so ayahuasca is unique as a psychedelic or a psychedelic okay. sacrament um, because it contains monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Mm -hmm. And monoamine oxidase inhibitors aren't psychedelic in themselves, but they block the metabolism of certain neurotransmitters, which creates a metabolic vulnerability. Right? You can take certain drugs and with this metabolic vulnerability, you can run into really serious adverse effects, things like hypertensive crisis, which puts persons at risk for essentially having things like hemorrhagic strokes, like blood pressure mm -hmm. so high that like vessels in their brain kind of like burst or start bleeding. Bad, bad. Don't want yeah. that to happen. Or serotonin toxicity, which is much more about serotonergic drugs with the, with the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And that's more like extreme hyperthermia, mm. myoclonic seizures, confusion, agitation, comatose, going to the ICU, getting a breathing tube placed, things like that. So both of those things are things that you would really want to avoid and, and not do, right? <laughs> and so... You can find because monoamine oxidase inhibitors were the first antidepressants that really ever came to the market in the maybe even late 50s or, or 60s. And at that time, the, the uh, asthma inhalers that they were mm. using were benzedrine inhalers, a.k.a. amphetamine inhalers. So, you know, if you had asthma back in the day, you got an amphetamine inhaler to dilate the, the bronchioles or the, or the airways. Since then, you know, we've had this sort of genesis around bronchodilatory drugs mm. and we have albuterol, which is a short acting beta agonist. So it's a rescue medication. It's meant to open the airways in the case of a allergic or an asthmatic kind of attack that's closing off the off the airways. So you can find all of these warnings online, like don't mix monoamine oxidase inhibitors with, you know, inhalers because... I don't know. It never really says exactly what's going to happen, but it just says, don't do it. It's contraindicated, things like that. So you can find these sorts of things over the internet. And oftentimes I'll find like, you know, ayahuasca retreat with just laundry lists of drugs that persons aren't allowed to be on or aren't allowed to bring to ceremony and things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, you know, some of them are true, but a lot of them I find I'm just kind of like, I'm scratching my head thinking, I'm not really sure why that would be a problem or why a person couldn't use that. And for the most case, I don't write any articles about that. Yeah. But with albuterol, I was kind of thinking, well, geez, if someone's airway is closing in a ceremony, I would want to use something that opens their airway. And I would be willing to take the risk of mm. a pounding heart, some extra hypertension, if someone's airway was really closing. Because that could be life-threatening if they were severely asthmatic. And ceremony is the kind of place where people are smoking mapacho pipes and burning mm. all sorts of incenses and things like that. So there could be allergic triggers around or kind of in the in the atmosphere. So I'm kind of thinking like, yeah, like, should you just load up an albuterol for fun before you drink ayahuasca? But no, no, that's not what we're talking about. But, but you know, the decision to use a drug is always a risk versus benefit kind of decision. Right. And if you're kind of thinking that probably a lot of these warnings about MAOIs 
and inhalers came from the time when people were literally like inhaling amphetamine, which would be dangerous with MAOIs, versus albuterol works on beta receptors, doesn't increase serotonin, norepinephrine, or dopamine, doesn't block the reuptake of those things. There's very little pharmacologic premise to believe that it would be dangerous with MAOIs. You know, I can find textbooks of emergency medicine that basically say if someone's on MAOIs and their throat's closed, use an albuterol inhaler. You could even give an EpiPen if it was anaphylaxis and life-threatening. And an EpiPen with MAOIs, woo, that would be a risk versus benefit decision. But I can find, you know, textbooks of emergency medicine that's basically saying, like, if it's an emergency, do it. Manage the consequences of the interaction afterwards. But if it's an emergency and the throat's closed, you just got to act. Right. So I picked that one to write an article about because I felt like it was one of these rules around ayahuasca that's not really grounded or evidence based and could be the difference between, you know, someone having their airway open and, and not. So I just felt like that one was a really important one to kind of like outline that, no, if you got asthma and there's a risk of your airway closing, bring your rescue inhaler to ceremony. And, you know, if it's really I say like a severe asthma attack, like wheezing and shortness of breath. Like there's like, you know, the, the facilitator should, would be able to like hear the sort of like breathing difficulty, um, then you could administer it. I think the flip side of that is like, okay, maybe someone had childhood asthma and mm. maybe um, there were a few times they had some pretty bad attacks as a child and they couldn't breathe and that was just traumatic for them. And they're an adult now and they haven't used their asthma inhaler in years. And that it's like, OK, well, you've still got it. It's not expired. <laughs> OK, bring it to ceremony <laughs> uh, right in case of emergency. But I think that there's an opportunity or a chance, I guess, that sort of like the trauma of the past comes up, like mm, I'm having yeah. a panic attack. And I'm like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. But the <sighs> it's like, well, I can hear the airway open. It's just very rapid, shallow. It seems more panicky. So. Let's give you some emotional support, try to deepen the breathing, try to get you tuned back into the music, perhaps, or following the song. And, you know, I'm going to stay with you and, you know, until the panic has subsided or I'm really hearing the shortness of breath or wheezing that would indicate like, wow, there's really something going on with your airway and I'm going to help you with that now. I, I bet you could just give someone like a, a, a blank a blank uh, thing and would probably help them because sometimes it's just the idea of having something that's going to fix you, right? Like the whole placebo idea of like, here, yeah. use this inhaler. Okay, perfect. Oh, you're way better now. You know what I mean? On some level. Possibly. Like, I mean, if it was like truly like panic, right? right it's right. probably like the asthma inhaler, it forces them to be like, right? Oh, so my it's mom. Like, just, just the inhaler in itself. Yeah, like, yeah force exactly. A person to try to take a longer, slower, deeper breath or, right. you know. You it's know. interesting to think about. I, you know, I, we hear a lot of different talks about different kinds of psychedelics, and I, I'm, I saw a little blurb that you did on MDMA, and is it a psychedelic? I was wondering if you could share that story with people. Yeah, so psychedelic means mind manifesting, right? And so there's, you know, there's, I think that there's a lot of cool words out there in yeah. the world uh, of psychedelics, right? So, I, like originally. Like, well, originally to the West, let's just say that, right? <laughs> Not originally, but originally to the right. West, you know, psychedelics were termed psychotomimetics, meaning they mimic the state of psychosis. So the first words that we had that described the effects of psychedelics literally had nothing to do with what the person was feeling or experiencing. And it was what an observer thought of what they were feeling or experiencing. 
well, they look psychotic. They ate LSD or something like that, right? <laughs> and then the term sort of like hallucinogen, mm -hmm. uh, you know, meaning to generate hallucinations came along and, yeah, I don't know, perceptual distortions, profound perceptual distortions sometimes. I don't know. Hallucinations maybe pop. Like, I guess I think of hallucination more like there's a leprechaun in the corner, <laughs> totally. right? Whereas like, I think of more like, whoa, the tapestry is changing colors and shifting into yep. these fractal patterns. And it sort of looks like the walls breathing a little bit. Yeah, I'm like, well, to me, that's a little bit more perceptual distortion right. that, hey, you want to call it hallucination? Like, that's fair enough. Like, I'm not going to argue too much. <laughs> Psychedelic is probably like the best term because it's just a generic umbrella term that means mind manifesting. And mm -hmm. so, I don't know, like, MDMA definitely shows you something about your mind and how your mind works and you can gain insight from yeah. those experiences and things. So from that kind of like angle, yeah, it fits the bill psychedelic. And I would add like from that angle, the dissociative anesthetic ketamine fits the bill psychedelic, right? But many people will be like, that's a dissociative. That's not a psychedelic. And it's like, well, if it's revealing something about my mind that I'm learning from, then that seems mind manifesting enough to, to me. Um, but MDMA is probably like more accurately thought of as an enactogen or empathogen, mm -hmm. meaning to like to generate um, a state of empathy. That's like empathogen to feel empathy to another or oneself. Right. A lot of self empathy with MDMA, yeah. a lot of like self love. And that's what enactogen means to, to touch within. Right. So uh, when people say the word psychedelic, they are usually talking more about what they call like classic psychedelics or maybe classic hallucinogens. These are things like psilocybin, LSD, NN dimethyltryptamine or just DMT. Um, and the kind of oddball phenethylamine there is mescaline. But MDMA is more like a designer amphetamine that happens to be serotonergic. So it's a serotonergic amphetamine uh, it doesn't really cause very much in the way of perceptual distortion. It doesn't really cause much in the way of like mystical experience or this kind of like I would say like non-dual experience where the person feels sort of merged with ultimate reality or God or kind of whatever their their faith predisposition is. It's much more of a self-knowledge drug. Um, it's a fear reducing type of drug. Right. So people sometimes will colloquially refer to MDMA as a heart opener. You know, I'm kind of thinking heart opener might be synonymous with fear reducer in that if you reduce a person's fear, then all of a sudden they're open, right? It's sort of like a person's fearful. What do you do? You crouch down, you curl up, you protect your heart, right? So, so yeah. a heart opening effect could almost be synonymous with a fear reducing effect in some way, but... I guess I like the heart opener because I think that what what where MDMA is squarely a psychedelic is your emotional range. Like it opens your emotional range. And so you've got reduction of fear, an open emotional range, and an ability to kind of connect with yourself. And that's probably why it's a good place to start for somebody with severe PTSD because it's not so much dissolving them out there in the universe I mean, psilocybin, when it's good, oh boy, it's spiritually ecstatic, but it can also be dysphoric and just like kind of rake you through the coals and take you mm. to an underworld. Whereas MDMA, I mean, they call it ecstasy and not agony on the street for a reason. There's a neurochemical buoyancy to it, 
right? There's there's sort of an ability to look at really difficult things that have happened and process them in a way that doesn't overwhelm you with fear. Um, not that uh, psilocybin couldn't be a helpful tool for PTSD, but I tend to think when when the PTSD is severe, they kind of go to a place where they dissociate a lot, things like that. And then I'm sort of thinking, yeah, MDMA might be a softer place to to begin and start sort of exploring that that kind of territory. So MDMA is squarely not a hallucinogen. And most people, when they say psychedelic, are talking about classical psychedelics or hallucinogen types of, of psychedelics. But if you want to just call it mind manifesting, an emotional psychedelic and an actogen and pathogen, like all of those things, like I'm not going to like argue with you about them. It's like, a, like I've seen a few people on MDMA their first time they take it like it's an hour and a half, maybe two hours into it. So it's at the peak and they look at you and I mean, their eyes are as big as saucers. So it's like, okay, like, you know, it's on and they'll say something like, Oh, expected to feel like I was like intoxicated or on drugs, but I just feel more like myself than I've ever felt. And you're like, yeah, because it's probably you without fear, without the avoidance mm -hmm. mechanisms, without the things that squash your highest self, essentially. And so a lot of MDMA is removing these filters of judgment and fear and kind of seeing who would I be without those layers. And I mean, of course, fear and judgment are going to come back in. It's not like MDMA just bludgeons a fear response out of a human <laughs> being permanently or something like that. You know, it's like, no, you know, like, like fear is a very useful and adaptive part of our biology. It can get out of hand and run rampant. Yeah, true. But you know, the fear response, I mean, we'd all be dead if we didn't have a fear response. Yeah. Like, like straight up. Um, so yeah. <laughs> that, that's kind of why I think MDMA could be termed a psychedelic, but in some ways maybe doesn't fit as well as other things, or at least doesn't necessarily fit with what persons typically are conceptualizing when they say the word psychedelic. Yeah. I'm curious. It, it seems that from what I've read and, and it seems that MDMA is releasing serotonin. Is, is it also releasing, um, oxytocin as well is that kind of what gives people that closeness and the the want for relationships it seems like maybe there's not as much of that love and i'm just assuming that's oxytocin that that drops that in when you don't really have that on psilocybin or lsd yeah yeah so there's definitely like a neurohormonal releasing effect of okay. mdma that has not um been documented with some of the other like classic psychedelics like psilocybin and it is a, an oxytocin release like that's one uh, neuropeptide that that's released, mm. but it's also releases antidiuretic hormone or arginine vasopressin. Uh, that one perhaps plays a little bit more, more role in, I would say like rare kinds of toxicities, mm. uh, like, like you can get low sodiums or a condition called SIADH, uh, sometimes from taking MDMA and probably drinking too much water at the, mm. at, at, at the same time. Mm. But yeah, the oxytocin part of MDMA yeah, it's hypothetical. Like, a, like it's hypothetical as far as like what part of the MDMA experience is from oxytocin. What part is from? Because I mean, it releases serotonin, also releases norepinephrine and dopamine. You know, those are kind of feel-good neurotransmitters and thing, things of that nature. So, I believe that. Um, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to say it and get it wrong, <laughs> but I've read an article or two out there that kind of, I would say 
is a little bit skeptical towards like how much of the MDMA experience is responsible for oxytocin. And honestly, I don't recall the details of the experiments at the, at the moment. Um, but yeah, it, it, basically I've read a few articles that kind of have a narrative around, well, MDMA does do that. It's widely thought that that is why it has this kind of like social bonding and pathogenic type of effect, but there's really not very much that clearly shows that or demonstrates that, and maybe even some probably more like uh, preclinical stuff in rodents or animals demonstrating that the oxytocin effect may not be so huge. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like I remember when I had my kid, right? Like I remember yeah. like holding her as a baby and it's like, I felt like I was high on MDMA just totally. as a baby. And it was just kind of like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if this kid just like causes my brain to like rain neurotransmitters or whether it's just releasing so much oxytocin, but like, like there was sort of a, you know, a subtle self proof or something around <laughs> that experience. It was like, whoa, like now I, now I appreciate the neural hormonal aspects of MDMA without this sort of like stimulant amphetamine part of it, because, you know, just holding a kid, I'm not on amphetamines. You know? Yeah. So that makes me think of, you know, let's, let's talk about the idea of having a kid again. And, and sometimes we remember, and I guess this question is basically going to be about how the brain works. And, and this is all hypothetical because I don't know. I'm just asking you. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know either. <laughs> so let's just, we'll just give our opinions here or at least yeah. I'll throw out mine and you can, you can bounce it back to me. Yeah. You know, when you, when I have a kid and I, I remember holding my kid and I remember teaching her how to ride a bike. And like, I remember these really emotionally charged moments of when things happen. And I'm yeah. in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, that must've been when the neurotransmitters were really pumping through the system or, you know, that's when some new neuroplasticity was taking place. And yeah. then if, if I can look at like a psychedelic experience that I've had and, you know, let's say before I go into a high dose psilocybin experience, I sit down with my journal and I think about my intention and what it is I want to think about or what it is about me that I want to figure out or my relationships. I've found that, you know, th that at that state, I'm, while I may not remember exactly what happened in that state, it's the the uh, the time after the integration afterwards. But after about a month or so, I feel as if I've really learned something in that state, and I think it it's similar in that. Is it possible that what you're seeing is this mega release of hormones or or um, you know? Uh, different neurotransmitters that are allowing you to learn something more deeply and more rapidly. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think like, like, for example, like, uh, like, uh, gosh, it's like, Oh, what's his name? Like, I forget the names, but they wrote in this book about consciousness. Um, maybe like Jamie Wheeler, Jamie Wheeler, one of the authors, uh, there's two authors to the book. They have a beautiful book about consciousness and they talk a lot about flow. They talk about flow yeah. states and basically how research demonstrates that if you can get into flow, then neuroplasticity, creativity, yeah. things like that just sort of like naturally increase. And, you know, in that book, they actually talk about surf therapy for PTSD. 
and talking about how, you know, they took this group of persons and taught them how to surf because surfing is something that just induces flow. Like there's certain activities or things that you can do that just kind of induces flow. And we've all sort of accessed a flow state at one time or point. It's kind of like you're doing something and then you just sort of forget about everything else. Some people call it the zone, like you're in the zone, right. like the person that's climbing up that rock face that's God yeah. knows how many thousand feet tall or something. And everyone's like, aren't you scared you're going to die? And it's like, <laughs> well, if I got scared, I would fall. I have to stay in the mm. zone. Like I have to be in flow. That's the only way that I could do this. If I started thinking about what happens if, you know, then then it would all fall apart. Right. So so there's definitely places that we can go in our mind where our brain's capacity to do certain things is greatly expanded or enhanced. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like, as far as I'm concerned, that's like an empirical sort of truth rather than a hypothesis. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, psychedelics can be peak experiences. Like there's certain yeah. things that we, that we conceive of as peak, like, like the birth of your kid, probably yeah. like a peak sort of uh, experiences um near death moments mm. maybe also peak sorts of experiences you know people are sort of drawing these parallels right between the types of lessons that persons get from near death experiences i'm never taking my life for granted again i'm never mm. wasting another day again i'm never leaving my loved ones and not saying i love you again because it might be the last time and i would never want to leave it hanging that way ever so I'm not going to do that anymore. Like I can't take life for granted. I think that's one, um, you know, thing that happens with psychedelics is it changes person's relationships to, to mm. death and, and to life really. Cause I mean, changing relationship to death is, is changing your relationship to, to life. And that, you know, the person that's sort of obsessed with death is the person that is not choosing life. Right. There's sort of like this ambivalence between life and death and sort of like, OK, you have an experience where you realize whatever you want about death that puts it in its place. And then all of a sudden it's like, right, this life is so precious. I'm in the now. I have to focus and, and do what I'm doing now. You know, I think having a kid, I mean, wow, it's like one of the most psychedelic things yeah. ever, to, to yep. be honest, because it's like the wheel has like rotated like one like full direction. And it's like you teaching your kid how to ride a bike, but there's part of you that's remembering how you were taught to ride a bike at the same kind of time. Or yeah, you tend to want to watch the same movies you watched when you were a kid. Yeah. Like, yeah. The land before time. That was a good one. You got to <laughs> rent it, you know, <laughs> that kind of like stuff. So you get a chance to sort of like do it over again. And I think that for a lot of people, it's one of these experiences where it shows them exactly kind of like where the trauma is because they see their reactions to the kid's behavior and they see themselves, whoa, I was yeah. about to enact the exact <laughs> thing that I hated being done to me. Yeah. Like that sort of thing. So I don't know if that really like answered your question, yeah. around, like like the neuroplasticity of like yeah. kid, kid to, to, to ride a bike. But there's certainly some like really deep moments from when you're raising a kid. And yeah, whether it's because the wheel has turned and it's sort of like, wow, it's like you're experiencing the life of two persons almost like simultaneously or something else. But I, I would say like in my consults, right, there's there's a few sort of like 
phases to to life. And I'll say like maybe the okay. maybe the older adult around like retirement age or an age where perhaps like there's a little bit more like loss and illness around you and things like that. Like that's a pretty common time to want to sort of like reevaluate things when you're kind of considering what does the next sort of like chapter look like, like that's like a pretty common like flavor of consult. I would say like 50 to 70, somewhere in there. But I'll say the other really common flavor is the 30 to 40 year old that either is expecting a family or has a new family. And it just sort of like brings all the shit up. Yeah. And they're like, I want to deal with this now because I don't want to pass it on. And um and yeah, it's a good time. Like it's a good time to do to do that kind of work. And you can yeah, that like like your kid can be your healing muse. You know, it's like I was reading something that made me it actually kind of teared me up the other week. And it was I can't remember exactly where I was reading it, but it it um it basically said something like, Well, you know, a lot of parents, like if they, if you ask them, you know, they would, you know, would you die for your kid? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Would you truly live? Would you give up all your bad habits and be your best person for your kid? <laughs> Shit, that's hard. Yeah. You know, so so I think in a lot of ways, like, yeah, of course, you love them. I'd give my life for them, right? But, like, probably the best gifts that you can give them is to work on yourself because, you know, that that's, that's going to be better than sacrificing yourself for them ultimately. Yeah. It's kind of a paradox, too, because if... Yeah, you know, it's a paradox, if, exactly. Yeah. Right? You, I mean, if you if you're... Part of you has to die if you want to be the best parent you can. Like all those bad habits. If you want to be the best parent you can, then part of you has to die. Like this part of you that lived alone, this part of you that didn't understand relationships, this part of you that's still yeah. your dad that hated these things. Like yeah. it has to die. And if you raised your hand, you're like, yeah, I'll die. Well, then which part of you is lying? And, and that yeah. brings us to this idea of I love the idea about the wheel and the like I'm a big fan of like this, this third way, I call it. And it's it's sometimes at the peak of a psychedelic experience, you get to see yourself as the subject, the object and the observer. And if you, if you've been in this position where you just pan back and time kind of changes a little bit and you're like, wow, I can almost see all these decisions that I made, or I could see how they would have gone. Not that it really would have gone that way, but it gives you a different perspective. And for you to be able to see your life as an observer really just gives you a a very clean perspective on what you can do to change your life. And I'm wondering if you've heard about some of this in some of your consulting, just the subject object relationship. We talk about all day long. We're, we're having a subject object dialogue. We look at things yeah. like objects, but this idea of the observer is something that's kind of brought about in the psychedelic experience. Have you, have you noticed yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about yeah. that? Uh, yeah, I think it's, I, uh, like I, I kind of use this uh, like as far as like, well, why would I take a psychedelic? Like, what, what would be the point? And it's like well, different perspective. You gain some perspective, right? It's like, well, like, oh, maybe you will feel better. Maybe you'll get a rapid reduction in your symptoms. Maybe you'll have a mystical experience, right? Like those kinds of things. But it's sort of like, you know, at a very basic level, I mean, you should be able to learn something from almost every experience in life. And that's that's a good way to approach life is that, you yeah. know, everything that happens to me is a learning experience. And I I feel that the psychedelic experience is I don't know, it's mind manifesting. It's like it's like that on steroids or something. It's like an experiential, <laughs> an exponential example of something that is just constantly true, like, like overall. Um, 
gosh, I derail myself. <laughs> but, um, it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I, um, if I take it back for just one minute earlier in the conversation. Oh yeah. The, the, the subject yeah. object. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That was it. That, that was it. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> I got it now. Okay. Uh, right. So, so like, it's like, like someone that's never taken a psych, like, why would they take a psychedelic? Yeah. It's kind of like, I don't know. Like, let's say you put a, put together a, a 10 year plan for your life. Right. <laughs> And uh, you ha you've got it dialed in, or you think you've got it dialed in, and or maybe it's a business plan. Right? Mm, better, right? yeah, better, better <laughs> example, like a business plan, right? And you're kind of like ready to ready to go with your business plan, and someone says like, "Hey, you know, maybe you would like to get a fresh set of eyes to read your plan to see if there's anything that might need altered or changed, or you know, no one would no one would respond like, "Oh no, a fresh perspective." wouldn't be good for my business plan. Uh -uh. Like, and it's true, I guess you could hire a business consultant. that gives you a bunch of really terrible advice and you implement mm. that advice and it screws it all up. Like, look, okay, that's possible. Right. Set and setting. Don't hire the yeah. wrong business consultant. Right? That's the, the, the parallel there, I think. Right? But, but you kind of see what I'm saying. It's sort of like, all right, if you, if you are able to dissociate from this relative, subjective perspective yeah. and expand a little bit and kind of see things from a more neutral and bird's eye perspective it's wildly helpful yeah and i think like honestly like like a lot of psychedelics do this i mean i think yeah it's like is it this like perfect clear perspective observer and it's like i don't know it's it's a little bit of a funhouse mirror that those sure. psychedelics like there's a bit of like there's still a little bit of distortion there that you know you got to check yourself in the in the process um but i actually think ketamine might be one of the best drugs for for this kind of thing because it is a dissociative like mm. it kind of dissociates the consciousness and causes it to bubble up and it, it really does feel uh, a lot like a, an observer perspective you know at least to at least to to me personally um it's like interesting in that way is that you know dissociate actually has a negative yeah. connotation yeah. Yeah. in in society and even even further so in in psychiatry it's like literally uh symptomatic jargon associated with you know trauma responses right like fight, fight, freeze, or dissociate. So I've had some people like, you know, like kind of means just cause a dissociation. So obviously it would worsen PTSD. Mm. It's like, no, I, don't, I don't think you're just, I think that these are different sorts of dissociation that you're speaking mm. about here. And, you know, like maybe you need to disassociate so that you can reassociate in a way that you would like, right? Or maybe people talk about psychedelics as being, destabilizing it's like well it's probably true i mean they've definitely destabilized my life a few times and i've had to go through some pretty massive change processes and and, and whatnot but i'm appreciative and grateful for the destabilizing effect they had because i was stabilized in a place i didn't want to be mm. right so if it's kind of like if you're going through life maybe you're on a psychiatric medication maybe you're not everything's stable and you love it you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you should use a psychedelic, right? But if you're going through life and you're kind of plodding along and it's feeling like monotony and I don't think I'm going where I need to go and this is kind of blah and gray and, you know, maybe you're just stabilized in a place that isn't for you. And, you know, maybe it's going to require being a little off balance for a moment to, to recenter in a way that 
now I'm standing straight up and down because of an actogens. Yeah, it's a great point. It, it, it brings up, in some ways to me, it brings up the merging of science and spirituality. And I'll give you an example. When you look at like Schrodinger's cat, right? Like they're like, is it a wave or is it yeah. a particle? Well, it's the observer. It's the observer who, who plays, I don't know how, but the observer plays a fact in there. And the yeah. same thing with spirituality is like, okay, am I, am I, um, what's going on in my life? Well, how are you looking at it? You're the observer. And just being aware that you're the observer has a radical effect on your life. Like if that's, that's something that I, if people could take away something from some of my podcasts, that would be it. It would be, be aware that you're the observer. And watch how much that changes your life. Because it can have a radical effect on your relationships. It can have a radical effect on your language. It can have a radical effect on how you see yourself. And I, I just think this maybe maybe that's the foundation. Or maybe that's a bridge between science and spirituality. Is this idea of awareness. You had brought up these interesting words like mind manifestation and self-love. And when we think about the, the science of um, psychiatrics, isn't it weird how similar it is to spirituality or maybe a lack thereof? What do you think is the relationship be between those two things, spirituality and, and psychiatric medicine or psychology and spirituality? Well, what is yeah. the relationship there? Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems pretty clear that there's never going to be a comprehensive right. understanding of us, the universe, without a map of consciousness, without a science of consciousness, without yeah. a study of consciousness, right? So yeah, traditionally science and spirituality have been these like oil and water <laughs> things or yeah. something where it's like people can't quite put them together in some ways. But I think a lot of scientists, honestly, you just go kind of go like deeper and deeper into it. Probably the astrophysicist knows it the best, right? It's kind of like you just go to the bottom and in the bottom, there's just kind of god like staring at you and you're sort of like <laughs> yeah 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 it's like yeah. this this mystery is really deep is, yeah. is is really the kind of um conclusion so yeah mystic <laughs> but basically i think i think that you're right is like like switching like at least being able to toggle between yes uh, subjective yeah. and an observer perspective right so you could sort of like oh Ben is angry now, right? Like, okay, just 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 observing that I'm angry now. It's mm -hmm. like, hmm, are you gonna go observe Ben making a bunch of bad decisions in response <laughs> to that anger, or can you just acknowledge that Ben's angry and accept that he's angry and go choose some kind of behavior that yeah. allows you to not spread anger, put it on somebody else? projected like whatever the sort of standard psychological strategy is going to be yeah. to manage yourself and you'll notice different things about yourself if you can really take the kind of like a uh, observer observer route and yeah i think that that's like i mean that's a lot of what i think meditation is focused on is like cultivating the witness or yeah. having this sort of like observer uh perspective to to your life um yeah. So like science is, I mean, that's kind of spirit pharmacist, right? I was sort of like, well, that's, that's what's missing. 
That's just yeah. missing from pharmacy is the spirit. Like there's no, it's like, oh, I got high blood pressure. All right, take an antihypertensive, physiological, make your <laughs> blood pressure go down. It's like, well, it's like I'm having trouble focusing. It's like, well, here's some Adderall, like an amphetamine to like boost your <laughs> cognitive function. Totally. Right. And oh man, it's like the anxiety and the low mood. And it's like, okay, here's an antidepressant. It's going to affect your like emotional state. But there is just zero recognition in the world of pharmacy, or at least there was zero recognition that drugs can inherently be spiritual yeah. and that if drugs can inherently be spiritual, then there's probably a biological construct of spirituality in their brain that they're kind of activating, right? So we could learn so much about spirituality from a scientific perspective, simply by using psychedelics as like neuropharmacologic probes. Mm. So that's just, that's just one reason to make them at least researchable and make research easier is we're going to learn stuff about consciousness, the brain, things like that. So it's like, okay, even if you just hate psychedelics and feel like they should never be part of society and treatments for mental illness and things like that, like, please just allow us to ask questions and use them as neuropharmacologic probes and research. Like, please, like, like, come on, like, you're really just not going to allow us to like answer legitimate <laughs> questions about how our brain works, about why we feel the way we feel about what makes us feel that way. And so it's just kind of like, to me, yeah, it's sort of like traditionally they've been there, but it's sort of like the divide is just collapsing. And in a lot of ways, it was a false distinction yeah. the, the entire time. And I don't know. I don't know about the world. Uh, I tend to think that there's a lot of spiritual sickness out there. Like, yeah. like, a, like, a, like, like it's not really talked about, um, you know, how would you even diagnose it? Like how, like what would be the criteria that we, you would use? I've never thought about it. And maybe I could think of some later. Right. But, but so, so because it's just maybe a, a more nebulous kind of like concept of, of illness, but yeah, I mean, it seems like humanity has kind of psychologically detached themselves for nature. There's a real like conceptualization that it's like, there's me and then there's nature out there. Um, there's like almost a belief that the world was created for us. Therefore we can do whatever we want with it. That's a spiritually sick thought in my mm. head. Like, yeah. like I'm kind of like, if you're believing that, then you're literally carrying out those kinds of actions. You're thinking of yourself as some kind of specious alpha predator that belongs at the very top. And the world was just given to you to plunder and use however you would like. Right. And that's ultimately probably going to bring about your own extinction or at least you know massive levels of suffering to your own mm. kind eventually and probably collapse you know entire ecosystems at the same time it's like if that ain't spiritual sickness then you know i don't, I don't know what it is and like okay well psychedelics cure everyone and things like that it's like well I, I don't know it's like it might be a stretch to just think that like they're the soul thing that's going to save the world but at the same time they're definitely part of it the way that they bring people back to the connection to nature the way that uh, particularly psilocybin probably other plant medicines like ayahuasca or aboga or abogaine mm -hmm. really enhance this like nature related connection it really yeah. sort of like gets you out of the sort of i would say uh, consumer driven perspective where it's sort of like, okay, it's sort of like material, 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 make me happy, material, material. And it's like, well, none of that stuff is ever actually going to make you happy. And actually like most people sort of even know that. Right. Uh, but they're still just kind of going on with that sort of like pathway. So 
Yeah, there's a lot of spiritual sickness out there. And, you know, to me, sort of the biggest ones are, yeah, some of those like beliefs or thoughts like, like, why aren't we conceiving of humanity as the ecological stewards of the planet? Mm. Like, why, like, why wouldn't that just be like the baseline perspective? And, you know, I have the right to live and breathe just like a jellyfish has the right to live. And I don't know if it breathes. It's just kind of a blob with a <laughs> non-centralized nervous system. But just that, I mean, that's fascinating. It's like a brain without a brain. You know, it's like a. Yeah. Anyway. So I don't know if anyone's ever read the book out here, any of your listeners to the audience, but one book that changed my life when I was 16 years old is Ishmael by David Quinn. Amazing philosophical book about kind of the story of humanity, uh, some of these beliefs that I'm talking about, where some of the beliefs would have came from. And essentially, it's about a, a philosopher that has a conversation with the gorilla. The gorilla is the essentially the Buddha, the, like the mentor, like the wise one, the teacher. And basically, the, the, the gorilla through conversation just points out all of the flaws of, of humanity and how we could change it, we could fix it, or what, exactly like what the errors in thinking are. And I think that those errors in thinking essentially are a kind of thought disease or spiritual sickness that too many of us are afflicted with. Yeah, it seems like it. we've been inflicted with this idea of scarcity and when you live a life of scarcity you're always fighting and you know willing to sacrifice other people so you can have a tiny bit more but i i see so many positive signs like just in your title alone like spirit pharmacist like i you know maybe i'm maybe i'm forever the optimist or maybe i am someone who sees myself as coming out of this world instead of into this world but I, I really am beginning to see the marriage of spirituality and science. And I, you know, when you just think about the word whole to is like holy to make whole. And we think about the difference between healing and curing. And I speak to so many people like yourself and other people that I've been interviewing that have a very similar idea of who they want to be. And they've made a decision to move forward in their life, doing things that they love to do that help other people. And I think that the same way that there's been a, a void of spirituality, like there's this new rising tide of awareness of people that see themselves as part of the ecosystem instead of at odds with the ecosystem. I wanted to touch one more time, though, on this. Since we're talking about books and disassociatives, I've spoken to some people who look at the world of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And they're like, oh, maybe they're using Soma. Maybe they're using these drugs to disassociate so they can get back to their life. And I know that there's there's kind of been a light on there. And you, you addressed it a little bit. But do you think that there are some potential pitfalls for people using psychedelics, you know, in a, in a negative way towards people? Instead of this way that we're talking about that helps people, is there a chance for people to harness psychedelics as an abusive way to maybe – Get in absolutely heads. Like, absolutely <laughs> okay nice yeah like absolutely like i mean i don't know michael pollan right yeah there you good go. guy he he pollinated the people's minds about psychedelics <laughs> with his book funny. how to change your mind and his documentary how to change your mind right so psychedelics are about changing your mind right but it's like in which direction are we changing and, and in what way are we changing it? So a lot of it, again, comes down to controlling the environment that they're yeah. ingested in, 
getting the right intentions straight and ingesting them with people that have our best interest at heart and are trying to mold us towards the person that we want to be rather than the person that they want us to be. Mm. Um, so because psychedelics, like you know, all, all of them really cause these non-ordinary states and in the non-ordinary state, you are emotionally open, vulnerable, suggestible, right? So I would say that psychedelics attract wounded people, people that want healing. They attract healers, earnest people that do beautiful, incredible work. They attract sociopaths, narcissists, and manipulators because it like moths to a flame. It's like the yeah. perfect tool to accomplish the things that you want to accomplish if you are that kind of person. So yeah, it's the wild west right now in psychedelic guiding, sort of like industry, the words out, the clinical trials are so positive. You have all of these people trying to jump on a wagon and be a psychedelic guide. But yeah, you're coming to this looking for healing, buyer beware, like eyes wide open. You need to be thinking, how long has the person been doing this? You know, do they have a background in mental health or the issues that I'm coming to to, to deal with? Have they dealt with clients like me before? Um, there's a lot of other kinds of like questions that you could ask. What's my gut feeling about this person? Yeah. If it's not an F yes, then if there's some level of reservation, you can't even put your finger on it. Pass would be sort of like my suggestion overall. So that's just it is like, I don't know, like, like hypnosis, for example, mm, yeah. it's like putting, putting someone in a trance is essentially when you're in trance, you're more suggestible than, than normal. And usually you put somebody in trance by giving them a bunch of truisms in a row, things that they can't really like argue with because the subconscious just says, right. yes, 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 yes. And you could quit smoking. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, so I think that there's a way with psychedelics to, to use them almost as trance or hypnotic right. inducing agents, give the person their, you know, subjective experience, which probably should be mostly theirs. There probably shouldn't be much interference or whatever. It should just be sort of like I'm emotionally supporting whatever they need during that time. But maybe on the back end or things are wearing off, man, they're still so open, vulnerable, suggestible. They're in a neuroplastic window. If you can do some guided somatic releasing kinds of meditations, or if you can put persons on that have just really wonderful language that sort of leads people down this rabbit hole of releasing what they no longer need or stepping into their highest power or practicing forgiveness, acceptance, being the witness, like, like whatever they want to work on, yeah. right? There's guided meditations for all of these things. Uh, and on the flip side, yeah, really avoid suggesting things that you haven't talked about ahead of time with a person during the experience. You know, it's sort of like, okay, if you're thinking about adding ketamine at some point, that should be a contingency plan that is extremely clear and well discussed ahead of time and the circumstances for what, where, where and when it's going to be done. It shouldn't be that somebody's on MDMA or LSD or something and it's like, hey, things are going pretty well. Want a K shot? Right? It's sort of like, I mean, I, I mean, it, it's like it's comical. It's like it's laughable, but this is happening. Like this is happening. People are doing this kind of stuff, right? There are people out there that they get contacted of a psychedelic guide and whatnot, and there is no 
well, who are you and what are you bringing to the table and this and that? There's uh, next Saturday's open. Want to come over? It's just sort of, yeah, it's, it's just really fast, like just rushing into something that's going to put you in this position where you're, you're at the mercy of your environment. So controlling it, making a safe environment is absolutely paramount but then almost at the mercy of the suggestion of the persons that you're going to be around or be with, right? So make sure they're not kooky folks. They're going to start spouting off weird religious dogma in the middle or something like that. Like it could happen. It's interesting to take the it sacrament is. out of the setting. You know, it seems that in a ritualistic setting, there are elders, there's people that have been around the sacrament, there's people that have been around the medicine that understand the ceremony and then when you take the, the medicine out of the ceremony, you kind of take away all the regulations from it. And you could see how that could be problems. It, it could allow for the, the yeah. that particular. Well, yes and no. I mean, in okay. some ways, like it's kind of like, yeah, there's like, like just because someone's holding a ceremony or a ritual, I wouldn't necessarily take that to mean that they're doing it right or that the setting setting is good or that they're not nefarious or up to some sort of like manipulative right. thing. Because in some ways, like putting a ceremony around it, putting a ritual around it, it just like almost makes it stronger as Highlights far as it, yeah. like the ability to, right? Because it's kind of like, okay, you're coming into my ceremony and my space and these are the mm. rules for my ceremony and I'm the healer. You're the person that needs healed, right? So there's a power dynamic. Right. right. And, you know, oh, yeah, you know what? Like, I bet my penis could heal your sexual trauma. <laughs> Guaranteed. It's magic. <laughs> I mean, this happens in like ayahuasca circles. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's even happened in psychedelic assisted therapy sorts of like settings. Wow. Right. So, yeah, like, again, like how to change your mind. Psychedelics can do that. Some of the most beautiful, earnest, wonderful, talented healers in the world out there are using psychedelics as the tools, in my opinion. But eyes wide open, buyer beware. There's a lot of people that are attracted to this space and not all yeah. of them have everyone's best interests at heart. And even some people have best interests at heart, but they're just unskilled at what they do and haven't been doing it long enough and don't have any experience in the kind of issues that people are facing. So are probably just kind of, yeah, not, not cause a lot of harm, but just kind of like botch it in some way. Yeah. yeah. In some ways it proposes so much opportunity for healing, but in other ways it just proposes the same temptation that comes with any sort of great power, you know, and in a way it is a power. Exactly. With great power comes great responsibilities. Psychedelics yeah. are a double-edged sword. Yeah. We should write that down. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that. You know, as, as a pharmacologist, is it common? This is like a two-part question. And is it common to give a course of drugs? Like maybe you would go antibiotics and then something else, or maybe you would take like this drug and then that drug. And if that's true, might it be possible in the future to offer a course of psychedelics that could help particular types of traumas? Like you could go with MDMA followed by a course of psilocybin. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. Now we're right? getting somewhere. Yeah. Well, so far the psychedelic assisted therapy, it's been, you know, mono drug, like right. maybe one session, but probably more commonly for uh, major depression or PTSD, like two or three sessions spaced about a month apart, but all psilocybin or all uh, MDMA. Um, it's pretty common out there that psychedelic guides or therapists may be working with more than one substance. 
either in a sequence or in combination at the same time mm. on the same day. Um, you know, I, there's no data around that, particularly things like, well, my, my goodness, as far as like opening a space that is one of the most beautiful and potential for healing kind of spaces and things like that. Yeah. Like MDMA and ketamine, it's an incredible combination, but yeah, got some reservations about the cardiovascular risks <laughs> there because you're, you know, both drugs have warnings on them for increases in blood pressures and heart rates and, and things like that. So, um, I do believe that combinations and or sequences of psychedelics have an important role to play in the kind of like future of psychedelic therapy right. and even contemporarily, right? People are doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's just not evidence-based or really uh, data-driven. Um, you know, again, like people ask me all the time, like I did psychedelic X, when can I do psychedelic Y? All right. And okay, maybe if it's ayahuasca or ibogaine, there really is some time frame that you should wait for a safety purpose, but it's still probably not a long time frame. We're talking like, you know, days, not weeks or months and that kind of thing. You know, some psychedelic retreats offer more than one psychedelic sacrament or medicine, or maybe offer a couple with some sort of complementary shamanic modalities and, and things of that nature. So it's already done fairly regularly. And basically I'm kind of thinking like, yeah, well, is this the kind of retreat or psychedelic weekends where it's been set up as like, this is my tough mutter psychedelic gauntlet that everyone's going to go through and come out with like rubber stamp guaranteed mystical experience and your egg got cracked type of <laughs> thing? Or is it the sort of like, hey, yeah, you know, we start with this on the first day. This is an option for the second day. Third day is usually rest. We have this uh, shamanic modality you could try in the afternoon if you wanted. But, you know, no matter what, like every experience is optional. And even if you want to do the experience, just like we're going to talk with you a little bit about kind of how are you feeling today, where you're at, whether you're looking for a deep experience today, whether you want something kind of lighter, whether you're sort of still feeling like you're processing from last night and we could maybe spend a little bit of time just like talking it through without going on that other journey, right? If it's like really the kind of sequence where it's mindful and you're evaluating and meeting a person where they're at before offering something else. And like I said before, you know, the plans, like why we're doing it, when we're doing it, all the kind of contingency thing has been laid out for the person in, in the kind of like preparation phase, then there's probably a lot of good that could come from those kinds of things. But yeah, the sort of like just stack, 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 stack. I don't know. It's like, well, this is going to make you better. Like kind of, <laughs> it's, it's just too much. And that's exactly where people kind of bite off more than they could chew and emerge you know, quite anxious or dysphoric in some kind of way. And it takes a while, you know, it's like Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall. It takes all the King's more horses and all the King's men a little bit of time to put Humpty back together again. And so, <laughs> you know, you want to kind of pick a bite-sized piece with an intention, break it off, get the gold, figure it out, integrate it, make it your new habitual state try something else. You know, I don't have any, like I've never seen an experiment that looks at the sort of like neuroplastic potential mm. of a combination, right? But 
I mean, I bet a thousand dollars that you get more neuroplasticity mixing ketamine with psilocybin than either drug alone. Like, yeah, I even give you two to one. <laughs> I'm gonna have to come down. We have to do this experiment. We we'll have to figure it out. <laughs> well, hopefully, like uh, like Olson's lab at UC Davis is doing a lot of like really wonderful science mm -hmm. on like neuroplasticity and things like that. They they uh, they actually just published this article looking at a potentially novel mechanism for psychedelics. Basically, they found that binding to serotonin 2A receptors on the postsynaptic membrane of the neuron was not enough to produce a psychedelic effect. And in fact, the psychedelic had to bind to an intracellular population mm. of receptors, which is pretty makes your head scratch. It's sort of like, man, what are those receptors like doing on the inside of the cell? And, you know, they're kind of in their discussion, they're kind of like, well, I mean, serotonin doesn't really seem like, like it seems too polar. So it can't dissolve through the cell membrane to reach the intracellular space and bind to that receptor. But what can dissolve through the membranes and bind to the receptor is psilocin and NNDMT. But not bufotenine, the metabolite of 5-MeO-DMT, which doesn't seem to be very psychedelic at, at all. So it almost like their conclusion is like, wow, cortical dendritogenesis or some of the neuroplasticity of psychedelics probably results from intracellular activation of these serotonin 2A receptors. But I'm, you know, for your, if you're just listening, you can't see my air quotes on <laughs> serotonin 2A receptors right now, but I'm putting in quotation marks because they sort of conclude like those might not be serotonin receptors. They might just be DMT receptors. Like they may just be receptors for endogenous DMT. Um, so amazing science, like just the fact that they have the tools and methods to be able yeah. to run experiments to get that granular is absolutely incredible. But then you read the paper's conclusion and it's like, endogenous and exogenous psychedelics need to be studied in human health and disease period wow so it's like it's like wow and this is like this is science 2023 first authors vargas if you if you want to go check out that 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 article um but yeah it's just so like like i'm almost crying just talking about it but it's sort of like i was i was like crying reading it because i was just sort of like wow here they are with the coolest granular level of inquiry that leads to an amazing conclusion about a novel mechanism of psychedelics stimulating intracellular serotonin receptors. But then their conclusion is just the most massive scoping statement. Yeah. It's just, oh, it's a whole new world to investigate. Like I, it, it just shows you how little we, I mean, we know so much, but how much more is there? How much further is there to go? There's, there's a group of guys, uh, Yahim Fever. He's got a company called April 19th, and they're studying, like, he, he wrote a paper called The Next uh, Generation of Psychedelics. And he I, he couldn't tell me exactly what they're doing because he has, like, these NDAs or whatever. But he's talking about the way in which there's a there's an alternate receptor. And I don't know if it's intracellular or something like that, but that's being attached to I too, it blows my mind to even think about, but it's so fascinating to think about what could be on the horizon for medicine, what could be on the horizon for psychedelics and what these things can actually do. We, we might just be knocking on the door right now trying to get in. It's fascinating to think about. Yeah. What, what it was well, I think, again, it's like it's like it just comes full circle. Yeah. Like it's kind of like if you really think about it, it's sort of like, well, 
what was the first form of sort of like mental health care out there? Was it, it was shamanism, shamanism, yeah. right? And sometimes the shaman used the sacrament and sometimes yes. not, right? And then after that, we entered the, I don't know, like, like well, psychiatry was born in the 1800s. So it's like basically a brand new medical specialty. It came along kind of after some of the others, but the sort of like the first big kind of push in psychiatry was psychoanalysis. So, you know, Carl Jung or like Freud, yeah kind of thinking that psychoanalyzing somebody or essentially going into their subconscious and sort of finding out what the repressed thoughts, desires, and things like that were, were, were sort of like the keys to unlocking mental illness and, and allowing for healing. And then, you know, we discovered like elemental lithium for mania or bipolar disorder or chlorpromazine mm. or like Thorazine for psychosis. And that ushered in the biological age of psychiatry, because for the first time ever, you had persons with bipolar conditions or uh, psychotic conditions that were quite severe, and they could take a drug and feel better, and they could live in the community. They didn't have to live in an insane asylum. Like, this is the asylum era, right, still <laughs> in, in the, like, 50s, right? Like, not, yep. not too long ago. So lithium and thorazine kind of brought around the end of the, the, the asylum era, and then you had this sort of, like, massive genesis of, of psychotropic drugs over the last 50 years or so. And it's, you know, very much been focused on this sort of biological paradigm of psychiatry or daily medication taking as the way to like manage or treat mental illnesses. So I'm really excited about psychedelic assisted therapy because hooray, finally, we have a modality that acknowledges and kind of marries both of these things together in that you have a drug that enhances some kind of psychological processing. And then you have the psychological processing around it to keep things safe, make it more efficacious, things like that. And in a lot of ways, psychedelic assisted therapy is neo shamanism. I mean, I've never even heard that I mean, term before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, it's literally like exactly like the, the Western therapist stamped model of shamanism is psychedelic assisted therapy. And, Probably some people that will disagree with me on that on that kind of like statement overall, but there's some truth there. Yeah, I think that there should be more. I had an experience once where I took a really high dose of psilocybin and, and I just I started believing all these crazy things like to the point where I knew them to be true. But then when I came down and I processed a little bit, I was like, that must be exactly what it's like for someone in a psychotic break. Like they believe these things wholeheartedly the same way that I believe these things. And I'm like, I think that there's real insight there. Like, cause you could think about yourself in that position. You could have real empathy for someone who's having a break and you've went through it. And I think that that was part of the, the shamanistic tradition or even some of the early work with psychedelics where the people taking them and being like, okay, I get it. What it's like to be in that state. Now I can try to figure out some remedies for that. Have you, is that sound accurate? You know, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Like, like I do think, for example, particularly if you've had a moment on psychedelics that things have not been going well and you've been sort of like overwhelmed with paranoia yeah. or something of that nature, I think that it gives you an ability to empathize with a person with, with psychosis, whether it's really like having psychosis mm. or not, you know, maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Like there's probably aspects of it that are quite similar and perhaps aspects of it that are that are less consistent. But but I think to your point, yeah, it's kind of fair to sort of think like, well, I mean, why do psychedelic experiences go well and heal people? 
because we control the set and setting, you know, if what would it be like to be on 250 micrograms of LSD walking around trying to live your life and have to do that for a month straight? It's like, would it go well? Would you feel good? Would, you know, so, so, so I think from, from that angle, like it, it allows you to sort of like have a lot of empathy. It's like, if your mm. reality testing was impaired, yeah. right. That kind of like, I was having these in your words, like kind of crazy thoughts that I like started believing, right. Like if your sort of reality testing was impaired almost permanently, it would be really hard. It would be really hard to sort out truth. It would be really hard to just live on an even keel yeah. as far as mood goes, you know, the, you walk into the grocery store, the fluorescent lighting and it, you, you could wig out, you know? Yeah. And anyone that's been to a grocery store on LSD probably has even more empathy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Ben, I'm getting close on time. I I'm super thankful that we got to hang out today and I, I love it. It was really fun. You know, I, I think that everybody who is working with, with a retreat or something like that should probably have your number on speed dial or at least have your site right there for to look at. Let, let's say that you're one of my listeners or you're somebody that's interested in what you're doing. Like, what's the best way to get a hold of you if they want to figure out more information, or they want to find out what you do? Like, what's the best way to do that? My website, spiritpharmacist.com is the absolute like best way to to learn more about my like service offerings and and things like that again well i said I only do two things <laughs> psychopharmacology consulting and psychedelic education that's true right like you can consult with me on a one-on-one -on -one basis yeah. you can purchase my courses like a la carte and they're you know yours forever as long as spirit pharmacists exist but I actually do a third thing which combines the consulting and the education. So I have a member resource and support program. It's a subscription. And this is my vehicle for people that want to work longitudinally with me. So you're listening, you're a facilitator, you're a provider, you're a retreat organization, or maybe you're just a, on a, an individual on a healing journey and you know you're going to need to taper a couple of psychiatric meds or suspect you may need to and begin using psychedelics. And you just want someone to sort of touch base with or visit with or bounce questions off as, as you go, the member resource and support program is the best way to do that. Um, like it suggests, it's a resource and support program. So it includes all of the classes that I've done, all the webinars I've given, all the written drug information guides that I've constructed. So instead of like buying a course a la carte, we just get one. It's more like you're renting my Netflix library of courses, webinars, information guides, things like that. And then as far as the support services, there's a drug information service or like an email-based Q&A. Uh, also respond via encrypted apps, via voice messages like Signal or WhatsApp. I'll sometimes leave a message. Sometimes it's just much more efficient to communicate or kind of go back and forth asynchronously like that. Um, and then you get discounted rates on kind of one-to-one -one consulting. So a lot of persons that are having sort of, I would say like a longitudinal relationship with me are kind of getting clients perhaps that are taking psychiatric medications and they seem like a good fit, the rapport is there, things like that, but they're just have some sort of outstanding questions or um, yeah, wanna like kind of optimally understand like what the interaction potential is and what that person may need to do to have a, an ideal experience for them. And in that case, it's sort of like, okay, well, we can sort some of it out through email Q&A, but some of this comes down to, does the drug work for you? Do you like it? Is there side effects? Do you have an intention of stopping it? Like things like that. And it's like, well, I can't tell that from an intake form. We need to have a conversation with the person. So at that point, 
they can book a discounted consultation. So uh, the member resources support program, if you want to take a course, you want to book a console, you want to ask questions on an ongoing basis, quickly becomes like the best value to do it. And like, I don't even have an email Q&A service outside the member program. Uh, so speed dial, uh, <laughs> I mean, like, like, uh, I, like I, 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 I tend to think that, you know, if you're doing your screening properly, you're doing your preparation properly, there's probably little in the world of psychedelic therapy that really should be urgent or, or emergent. I try to respond to email questions as quickly as I can, but like, frankly, for efficiency, I usually batch them couple times a week, maybe, maybe three times a week. So people are usually looking at a few business days to get a response. Sometimes it's a little quicker than that. Sometimes it could be up to five business days, but you know, I respond. Yeah. <laughs> you know, on a, on a related side note, what advice would you give to people like here in Hawaii, we have something called the clarity project and we're working with the legislation to try and get them to understand the benefits of psychedelic therapy. I know that they have you know, have different legalities in Colorado and Oregon and that they've worked through their legislature. What advice, if any, would you give to people who are trying to give the legislature, their government notice about why psychedelics are good? Would you, is there anything in particular that you would, you would highlight that the people tell the, or, or ask the, the uh, legislature to review, you know, is it maybe we could bring down healthcare costs or maybe this is something that's best for wellness or is there any particular angle that you think might be advantageous? Well, I'd probably take a different angle depending on like what I was trying to do, right? right like if I was right. trying to dec decriminalize right. psilocybin, I'd probably take a slightly different angle than if I was trying to medicalize MDMA, for example, like right. probably a pretty different angle like, like, <laughs> like overall, really. Um, you know, I think that, you know, you can like rah, 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 psychedelics are so great. Psychedelics are healing, this and that. But it's sort of like the elephant in the room, I think for most persons that aren't in the world of psychedelics, there's like, are these things safe? Do they hurt people? Aren't people just going to be, you know, jumping out of windows right. and crashing cars and all this kind of stuff? Or or maybe just um, they need education around what decriminalization even is. A lot of people have decriminalization and legalization just kind of. Well, I mean, it's it's I guess it's a form of law change. It's a form of regulation, yeah. but it's not yeah. really legalization. It's more like taking it away as far as a priority for law enforcement. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that you're able to sell large quantities and open right. up a shop and things like that. Uh, so depending on what, what it is, you might sort of focus on different things. But I tend to focus on like, 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 like where are the reservations that people would have? Uh, yeah. It's pro yeah. They're probably not reserved around like, I mean, maybe there's some people that have reservations. It's like, does that really treat depression? And it's like, <laughs> well, I don't know. You could read the New England Journal of Medicine and conclude yes, if you really want to, right? But I think more like the, the, the bigger reservations are just around sort of like, is that safe for an adult to use? And isn't that going to make the rates of psychosis and bipolar disorders go through the roof? And, you know, isn't that going to be a stress on our local hospital systems when everyone goes bananas and has to go there and you know like they like it's like it's a lot probably a lot about reassuring that no psychedelics aren't addictive actually right at least not psilocybin if you're talking about mdma and ketamine yeah they're on a substance dependence habituation spectrum somewhere but they're still not at high risk compared to 
other sanctioned things like alcohol or cigarettes. Right. Um, so yeah, just, just, I don't know if I have any like one thing, but I was sort of just think like, I guess my one thing is it depends. And <laughs> it's funny, <laughs> it, it, you know, it, uh, and probably just like thinking about like, what am I trying to do and what are going to be the biggest like roadblocks, reservations, reservations, or like hesitations of my audience for just saying like, yeah, that's okay. And like focusing on like safety. Right. It's almost like like if I'm talking to the public, I mean, most of the time I'm probably actually trying to temper their expectations around efficacy and get mm -hmm. them not to be thinking of it as like a mystical bullet and right. more like a path that they're on and a process that they're going through that could require a few administrations. And it's a course that you're going through, not a one and done. Boo, oh goodbye, depression, PTSD type of experience. And then I would say if I'm talking to more like the healthcare provider, the legislature, like like something like that, it's much more, you know, around like trying to reassure them that it's safe and that you could set up some kind of system or way that would allow people to access it responsibly and not hurt themselves. And because that's probably what the policymaker is, you know, concerned about. I don't know, depends who the policymaker is too. Yeah. Like, you know, I think, uh, you know, depending on what side of the aisle and things like that, maybe you would uh, um, include some surveys of their constituents and what their constituents actually want. Because I think uh, for a long time, um, we've sort of thought of psychedelics as a partisan sort of issue, but I feel like the polls or uh, surveys that I've heard of or seen recently suggest that it's much more bipartisan these days than it's ever been uh, in the past. Uh, you know, JAMA, they just published a legislative analysis a month or two ago predicting not if, but when psychedelics are going to be legalized. And I forget their answer was like somewhere between like 2035 to 2038 or something like that. So it's like, here's the Journal of the Medi American Medical Association predicting when psychedelics will be legalized. So I think that to me, I was kind of like, man, the biggest yeah. medical journal in all the land is basically saying the trains left the station. This is coming down the pike. This is happening. It's not a question of how our law or if our laws will change, but like in what way will they change and, and things like that. Yeah, it's fascinating. Such an awesome time. Dr. Ben, is there anything else that you want to leave us with or did we cover everything or anything else you want to tell everybody? Yeah, I mean, I say like, I don't know. I, I try and include like something for everyone, right? So yeah. spiritpharmacists.com is my site. You know, you could follow me on Instagram or Facebook. I do post on LinkedIn, not quite as 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 often. Um, I have some, you know, free guides for download looking at antidepressant psychedelic interactions, uh, psilocybin like dose testing in combination with mm. an antidepressant, like a drug interaction and pharmacology guide on 5-MeO-DMT. Like a breakthrough psychedelics. It's a guide that compares the pharmacology of MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. Got a blog, right? So it's like, I don't know, I kind of talked a little bit about like the courses and the consulting and the member program. And those are essentially all my like paid offers. Right. But I really try to put free education out there as well because I mean, exactly. Like if uh if we're if we're if we're expecting the psychedelic renaissance to go well, it seems like before you had a psychedelic renaissance, you would have a renaissance in psychedelic education. Yeah. Or at the very least, it should be happening at the same time. 
because I think that if you let the cat out of the bag again, but don't tell anyone what it is or how to use it, then you're probably going to see preventable harm. And that's the last thing that we want. Yeah, I think signing up on the, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if you go to the Spirit Pharmacist and you put in your email address, then there's kind of a newsletter. I, I've, I've gotten yeah. so many great like surveys, or not surveys, but great links to papers that I've written. I'm like, whoa, look at this one, look at this one. And I, I, I'm not sure if we covered that, but people who are listening, you should check it out. You can, yeah. there's a the recent one was pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, I do do a, a monthly email. So I like, yeah. I have some, I don't know, they're automated searches that are done in PubMed or Medline. It's like a literature database. And then I get the results in my inbox and then I comb through the, the abstracts until I find somewhere between six or seven that I, I really like that I think are worth telling people about. And then, I, I send a newsletter. So yeah, sign up to my email list. Yeah. There's some value coming your way there too. Yeah, a lot of value. For, pe for people, my listeners, and I think people that are interested about psychedelics, it's really nice to have a guide on all kinds of levels, whether you're someone who's learning about psychedelics in, by taking them, or someone who is reading about them. But that's what the newsletter is like. I'm, I'm excited because I'm like, oh, there's going to be like five or seven new things and maybe I can get a guess. Maybe I can learn about this. But it's it's really well done. And I I can tell by reading those and talking to you how passionate you are about the world we live in and how excited you are. And like I said, I think you're a pioneer in a lot of ways, bringing together the world of spirit and medicine. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. I'm really thankful for it. So thank you for what you're doing. Ah, oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure being part of the True Life Podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. The, the links will be in the show notes. Check out Ben, sign up to the email. Um, look through his website. If it's right for you, don't hesitate to sign up and reach out to him. And um, Ben, hang on for a second. I'm going to close this out. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for everything. I uh, hope you have a fantastic day. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment... Go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.